Welcome everyone to the Optimal Performance Podcast. My name is Sean McCormick. I'm a life coach, performance coach, wellness entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to bring to you every single week the world's leaders in the field of performance so that you can live your life at its most optimal level. Plus, cutting edge ideas so that you can stay ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. Let's dig right in. Oh, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of the OPP. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. On today's episode, we are joined by CEO and co-founder of Belcampo Meats, Anya Fernald. She's an entrepreneur, a chef, an agricultural expert, and she's appeared as a judge on Food Network's Iron Chef America, Iron Chef Gauntlet. She was participated in that show for oh, 10 years or so. And in this episode, we dig into all things meat and farming, regenerative agriculture, and in uh, honor of this week's World Carnivore Month, the month of January. If you haven't heard of the carnivore diet, um, then you missed some of my episodes. <laughs> uh, it's where you eat nothing but meat, um, mostly beef, and um, it's 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 been shown sort of anecdotally to help people with inflammatory diseases, gut issues. And in this episode, we really dive deeply into what goes into creating super super high quality meat that's direct to consumer. This is the best tasting, most reliable meat. I mean, this really is. And and um, I've had the chicken, the carnitas, the bone broth, the meatballs, and this is insane stuff. The, the coolest part about this um, is that when you raise animals in a ethical way with lots of space and you focus on quality, when you focus on the land that you're growing your meat on, you get better tasting food. You get better tasting beef. The meatballs taste amazing. The ground beef tastes amazing. And for those of you who are highly focused on nutrition, this is a really excellent uh, resource. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you live close to a, a natural food store or if maybe every the only opportunities around you are like Safeways and Walmarts and Winco's. Uh, but for for the for those of you who are really focused on eating really high quality meat, uh, Belcampo has been nice enough to give us this massive twenty percent discount. So if you go to Belcampo, I'm going to look up the Belcampo.com, and you use the code Optimal Twenty, you're going to receive twenty percent off. So there's a couple of different ways that I would suggest that you use this this code. If you're a big chicken fan. Their chicken is amazing. They become they come wrapped um, these Cornish chickens, um, pasture raised, exceptionally flavorful, tender, juicy. You can buy a four pack and use that twenty percent discount, or you can do uh, like stock up on frozen stuff and uh, and just keep it in your freezer for. Uh, a rainy day. In this episode, we cover so many cool topics. I was really excited to talk to her because this theme that keeps coming up around regenerative agriculture, we have to we have to really like support our earth. We have to support our soils. And uh, Anya has found a way to do this uh, at scale and still um, really help the planet. Uh, it's a carbon negative um, um, pasture. They have 27,000 acres in um, in the, the shadow of Mount Shasta, a really picturesque area. Their website's pretty incredible. If you're interested in meat and uh, farming in general, just go check out and read their story. In this episode, we talk about debunking the criticisms about animal-based food production. We talk about 
uh, Belcampo success on the backs of like paleo, keto, and carnivore and their popularity. Uh, we talk about the importance of protecting soil, the importance of regenerative farming to the planet. We talk about the integrity of the soil and how important it is to obviously not eat um, factory meat, how terrible it is for you. Drop some amazing, amazing facts. In this episode, she references the fact that oranges have one-fortieth the nutrition that they used to have, and chicken has one-third the protein it used to have in a per-serving basis. So basically, the food that you're getting at a typical grocery store that's uh, that's factory-raised, um, you know, chickens hanging out in coops stacked on top of each other, not only is it gross, but it's actually way less nutrient dense for you. We also talk about cricket protein. We talk about the the sort of the process of of getting meat to consumers. You know, she mentions that that uh, in a study that she did, 10 to 25 companies have been involved in the mass produced meat from the from from the farm to the grocery store. So by the time you get it, there's been t- 10 to 25 different companies that have been involved in getting that meat to you. Whereas with Belcampo, you can get it right from them. You can get it right from the farm. So uh, th- this, to me, is a really important thing. Um, I eat a lot of meat. Uh, I found it to it just agrees with me. I basically eat meat and vegetables, and uh, I want to eat the highest quality stuff. And, and because Belcampo has, has had uh, such a role in sort of the biohacking community, I wanted to, to bring them to you. Um, this is a, a fascinating conversation. We dip into some, you know, we talk about lab grown meat and meat alternatives, you know, um, the impossible burger. And, um, at some points, you know, we get really honest around why those things are not good, why they're gnarly and why you should be really picky with the meat that you eat. Um, everyone would benefit from knowing how to tap into your intuition around food. You know, obviously that's at the very end of the episode. I say, you know, everyone, everyone would benefit from knowing. And then she fills in the blank and she just basically says like, you should be able to listen to yourself and know like, Hey, I need to eat some vegetables or Hey, you know, I really need some meat to, to, to develop this interoception inside yourself to know the kind of food that you want to eat. So super fascinating episode. I can't wait to share it with you. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Anya Fernald. So yeah, it feels good. Yeah. It feels like in the the moment around diet and people embracing simple whole foods um, is really and high protein is is coming into focus in a time that's great for us. So it's exciting to be riding this wave right now. Yeah. Well, I just pressed record, so we're just going to jump into it. We're here with Anya Fernald, who is the founder of Bel Campo Meats. Anya, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thank you for having me, Sean. Yeah. So I ask this usually of doctors and nutritionists and scientists uh, where it's relevant. But my typical first question is, what time is it where you are and what have you put into your body? Okay. It is 2.10 p.m. Um, I have put into my body so far today um, bone broth, Parmesan cheese, meatballs, and eggs. Nice. And coffee. Excellent. Oh, that's I, just. I I don't I I eat fruit and veggies and stuff, but usually just in the evenings and afternoons. I kind of like I like to start. I started my career as a cheesemaker, and I am European descent. Cheese just works for me. Great, yeah. as long as it's like a dry natural cheese. Um, so I I usually start my days with Parmesan and coffee. 
Um, and then like, like I kind of fasted last night, um, just sort of by accident I was busy and kind of just cranked through the day. So I was really hungry. So I made myself three scrambled eggs with a lot of olive oil. And then I got the hungries around one and I had a package of meatballs. So and some bone broth. <laughs> nice. On uh, brand. Uh, totally on brand. And it's, it's. And I am raising a duck as we speak. Yeah. Right before we click record she had to get up and go into her kitchen and check on the duck that's brazing currently so awesome <laughs> no i mean it's no it's no surprise that you are actually living what you are providing to people and that that's genuine and authentic and and i think that for anybody that goes to the website or that has heard any sort of um, endorsement or your appearance on any other podcast I think that they know that you are down to earth. You live what you talk about. This is not smoke and mirrors. You're not glorifying anything. You're just actually promoting sustainable foods, regenerative agriculture, and in eating and eating in the way that that we were kind of meant to eat, right? Yeah, I mean, I think my, you know, I'm I'm obviously not a nutrition expert or a dietitian, but I can speak to my own experiences and my expertise is is in the farming and agriculture side and building brands and running a business, right? But um, in my own experience, I, you know, I typically don't get movement in the first thing of the day. I usually get a little bit, like first you get my sunlight and like, you know, do a little bit of medicine ball or something or some stretching. But I try to just stay on that like low um, carb and high protein until I'm going to move. Um, that's just kind of what works best for me. It keeps me locked in and focused. And I try to like get my 7am till 3pm stretch of like hard focus brain energy and then eat some fruit, lift up a little bit, have plants. I'm not totally, you know, I'm not all animal all the time. Um, but I think about it in terms of the functionality in my, in my day. Right. So I, I do think that animal proteins and animal products in general are, are one of nature's perfect foods, right? And I think uh, my goal has been to offer a version of those foods that is as close to perfect as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So that you're answering all of the kind of potentially questionable and challenging issues around sourcing, treatment, uh, slaughter, processing, all that stuff is off the table as an area of concern. Yeah, yeah, we're we're definitely going to get into that because um, it is an it is an explanation that needs um, revisiting over and over and over to de to debunk the critics um, and and to talk about how to do this right. And there's so many places I want to go, and I I rarely write down questions, maybe one or two before guests because I like the conversation to be really organic and natural. But I have a couple of really specific questions that uh, that I'd like to get into. So. I mean, as as a someone who's been paying attention to nutrition for you know my adult life, I look at the you know um, the paleo movement into keto into carnivore. You know, in the last couple of years, um, uh, how has how has the emergence and and the popularity? I mean, the, the number one podcaster on the planet is you know basically living off of elk meat and um, using his trigger every day. And, and having, um, you know, carnivore experts on all the time. How has that been um, in tandem with the growth of Bell Campo as a company? That's a great question. So in the early days of this company, I started the company in 2012. I remember we had our first little restaurant, which has since closed in Marin, and uh, which is just north in the Bay Area of where I am. And it, it was a... Um, we kept on hearing, it's like, yeah, you know, we're selling this and selling that. You know, I just started this first restaurant. My first restaurant, it was a 
very challenging time. And it was like, but we, we have these guys who come in and they'll just pound like two chickens each. And cause I had rotisserie chickens on, I'm like, wow, I wish I could find more of those guys. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, there weren't more of those guys at the time. Um, but they have emerged, you know, so they, I, I really pivoted the business to embracing health at the end of 2017. And before that I positioned it as a gourmet business. Now I have always been in the culinary space professionally, and I'd say in the wellness space personally. So pivoting towards wellness allowed me to align this business with more of my heart's mission around personal wellness. So that's always a good thing. And I think the fact that we're doing much better now is in part of that ability to align around your heart mission. And I, I had never felt like I fit in in the culinary world because it's a lot of it is just really treating your body like a dumpster. <laughs> you know, and I was a judge on Iron Chef America for 10 years and I would do that for four or five days of shooting and I would be like sick for two weeks afterwards. Oh. So it was all sous vide and tons of sugar and no attention to sourcing and no attention to ingredients. And everyone's like, that's so cool. And I'm like, that's kind of the part of my life that I'm least proud of in some ways, you know, even though it was like the optics were really awesome. So I always felt that. And there's certainly some people within, you know, within culinary world, I'll call out like Bobby Flay and Alton Brown who personally were really into health and I really bonded with those people. But a lot of people sort of celebrated this, like, I'm just going, you know, I'm going 90 miles an hour towards the wall and I know it and I'm going. And that was not just the food. It was the bourbon and the weed and the, you know, the whole package, right? That that's the culture. And so that I never felt like I vibed in that world. Um, I always felt like I was just not willing to make those trade-offs. So the wellness world is also extreme in different ways. Right. right? Like it's a totally balanced world. There's the same type of like every every world has the extremes of their bell curve. But positioning Belcampo between wellness and culinary allowed me to kind of be more in line with saying like I'm not just about like deep fried whatever pork belly with some sugary canola teriyaki sauce on it. No way. That's not my vibe. That's going to inflame. I don't care where that pork is from. That's going to make you sick. Um, so that, that kind of stuff was, was a good pivot for me to build, to build the wellness piece in now. So 2012 to, to 17, the business grew, you know, we really, we opened restaurants. We, 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 we were building the brand and building the business, but I think things came together much more in 17 Mm for me, when I really decided to pivot towards wellness. And then by the end of 2018, I'd actually gone through our restaurants and like taken out all the soy, all the canola, all the seed oils, um, pure, like just done all the little ticky tacky things that really made the restaurant experience in line with the wellness mission. Um, and then we still have indulgent things. We still have like a fried chicken sandwich. It's not like it's a totally virtuous, you know, thing. We still have ice cream and stuff like that, but it was more that where if you wanted to opt into something that was a really clean, Meal. Like I'm proud of right now. I cook all the time. So I mean, I love to cook, but this past two weeks has been super busy and I've ordered Bel Campo delivered to my home, uh, like four nights out of the past five, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, a, I love that I can get, you know, super clean, get it delivered. I know if you navigate the menu, right. And you can have, you can fit into whatever plan you're doing. That's why we designed it. So that's been a great, you know, piece. Like we added on sort of a superpower, another level where people utilize the brand in a different way. Yeah. Now with COVID, we're getting more and more focused on e-commerce and our retail channels growing as well. So all of this stuff is just in, at that point, you're not talking about engineering a restaurant 
to appeal to a certain you know world or to meet a certain unmet demand at that point that this all becomes a broader conversation about like how do i position a meat brand to be in support of wellness not just in the branding but in terms of everything about what we do in the production of that product yeah yeah it, that that's that's clear i mean it's it's clear to me um all the branding the 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 language you speak how you position it you know the the focus on soil just soil alone how important soil is how the regenerative farming techniques that you guys employ uh are actually beneficial to the planet you know for for a guy like myself who you know cares a lot about nutrition you know has eaten carnivore for a while tried it you know i'm not i'm no longer there but um you know, having conversations and listening to conversations with with experts who are trying to make the world a better place. And I, you know, I think of like Paul Check, who constantly talks about the number one important thing in the whole world is that we get our soil figured out. Um, you know, listen to uh, you know uh, folks like Dr. Zach Bush, um, who who's it's all about soil. It's all about regenerative farming. Like we 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 will not survive as a species unless we get this thing figured out. And that's contrasted by the vegan movement and the vegetarian movement. And for me, it, I take a lot of pride in, in, in being able to provide folks like yourself a platform to, to speak openly and honestly about how regenerative farming works, why it's a good thing. And so I'm going to have to, I'm going to ask you to get in a little bit of the weeds into how regenerative farming works and, and how the hell you manage 27,000 acres with all of these animals. So how, how important, I mean, like really level with us, how important is the, in, in the integrity of soil to humanity? Before we get Anya's answer to that very deep, very heady question, one quick announcement from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Blue Blocks. What I've been re- wearing recently, which I just sort of refound after a long time, is their Remedy Sleep Mask. The Remedy Sleep Mask is the most optimal sleep mask in the world. Using the most sophisticated design methodology, Blue Blocks has created the 100% light blocking eye mask for improved REM and deep sleep. Did you know that even a tiny amount of light hitting your closed eyes at night is enough to de decrease REM in deep sleep, which is the most restorative of our sleep cycles. The same small amount of light exposure while we sleep has also been shown in academic studies to increase our risk of diabetes, obesity, cancer, and heart disease. Think about the lights that are on in your bedroom at night. Do you get lights from street lights outside or do you have electronics that are plugged in? Well, that little light is actually going through your eyelids and making and, and, and screwing with your REM sleep. So these amazing remedy sleep masks that I've, again, the reason that I started to wear these again is because we were keeping the light on in the back porch because we have this new puppy. And when I wake up at night to go take him out to you do his dog thing, we were leaving this light on the back porch and I didn't realize it, but it was actually affecting my sleep. So I started wearing the remedy sleep mask and it's super comfortable. It doesn't like rub up against your, your eyelashes or anything. It's just, it's a really excellent product that I just sort of found again. I had it in my, in my drawer and then I pulled it out just a couple of weeks ago and my sleep is deeper. I actually wake up feeling a lot better. So go ahead and go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and use the code OPP for 15% off your first online purchase. Go ahead and either pick up the remedy sleep glass or the summer glow glasses that I'm wearing right now as I stare at the screen and edit this podcast. Okay, everybody back to the show impoverished soil can't yield good nutrition. I'm sure you are familiar and your listeners are with the statistics around how the nutritional value of things like 
broccoli and chicken and tomatoes and oranges has all guttered in the past 40, 50 years, right? Like there's all this great data that says it's got the same amount of calories, but it has way less protein and vitamin C and vitamin whatever, right? Why has that happened? Well, where do the vitamins in plants come from? We'll start with there. They come from root systems that extract them from soil. When you're growing plants on impoverished soil, there is not the nutrient density. So it's not that industrial agriculture produces lower quality foods. It's that industrial agriculture impoverishes soil. That soil in turn cannot produce high quality foods. Hmm. It's very simple. <laughs> Talk about carbon in soil. What, okay, part of it's cool. Like carbon is bad when it's in the environment, put it in the earth and it's sequestered and everybody wins. What does it do in the earth? It actually feeds the microbiome of the soil. Just like our guts, soil has its own microbiome. The vitality of that microbiome is just like our guts. It supports the vitality of the organisms that survive on top of it. If you have carbon impoverished soil, it cannot support the rhizomes, the nematodes, all the components of the microbiome of soil, which have to do with everything from bacteria to micro roots to special types of organisms to tiny little worms. And there's like literally billions of things going on there. When you impoverish the soil and you kill all of that off, the carbon leaches out of it. And then the carbon in turn is not in there to then support the vitality of those systems. So <laughs> it's a lose-lose. And that's where the, you know, with taking animal, the idea of taking animals out of the ecosystem, like a vegan argument, it's animals are crucial to the carbon fixing cycle in the soil in many ecosystems. There's always an exception, right? right. But in the that characterize um, many great ecosystems of the world, right? I'll talk about prairies here primarily and what's called a brittle ecosystem, which is like not particularly lush. This is where we farm in, in Northern California. Um, another brittle, brittle ecosystem is like in, in, in South Africa, there's giant, you know, play, like any prairie ruminant ecosystem. These are brittle ecosystems that are considered like a little bit fragile, right? Like they they require everything to kind of happen in a certain order. One of the things that happens in a brittle ecosystem typically in the wild is the arrival of vast numbers of ruminants that deposit fertilizer, consume plants, deposit seed pods in their fertilizer, till the earth with their hooves. A bunch of different things happen. It happens in a seasonality and a seasonal cycle. That's all crucial to the carbon cycling of that soil. So when we deplete carbon from the soil, we're taking the potential for nutrition out of our food. And then X that, you know, amplify that over a couple of decades with increasing monocrops. And pretty soon there's, there's no, there's no nutrients left in the soil. Just going back to the point, like you're right. Even faster than you think. Yeah. Though, because we've dramatically increased soil in our farm in seven years. We've mm -hmm. tracked it third party group dramatically increased. The really? Yeah. And it's actually, this is amazing. In, uh, we started the company in 2012 I, um, in 2014, the drought started right in California, the big, do you remember there's a big drought yeah. in California and, oh, such a mess for that time. <laughs> right? It's okay. We're still here today. But, um, that drought lasted like two years. Right. And in that time, our farm was so much greener than neighboring farms that local farmers accused my operation of stealing water. Oh, Okay. And there was like a literal, a legitimate 
accusation in the community that Belcampo was stealing water from the aquifer or taking more than our rights. Um, we don't have ditches, irrigation ditches, it's drawing off of an aquifer. But we were basically accused of, of, of stealing water. And the reason why was that our crops were so much greener than our neighbors. The reason why we were that much greener did not have to do with water. We actually probably had worse irrigation systems than most of our neighbors did because the farm at that point was fairly derelict. But um, it was about animal matter and 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 it was intentional like managed grazing that had done that. So that was like three years in to Valcampo. That was already very evident, the difference in practices. So it happens really quickly because think about it, you know, the other thing that um, so carbon increases the density of the microbiome of the soil, all these little teeny root systems and little bugs and poop and bacteria and stuff is in there. And it's it, it forms this like nice, like solid matrix. So when you hear about uh, massive like flash floods in the Midwest, right, and then thousands of acres of farmland are ruined, why are there flash floods? Because that microbiome holds it's organic matter. And the structure of that, the tensile strength of that microbiome, plus what's in it is what protects the earth from floods hmm. and protects you from erosion of your topsoil. So when, that's an extreme example. So if you use, um, I mean, if you use Roundup, right, which is the most commonly used pesticide, we all know about the impacts of that chemical on mm -hmm. our bodies. If you use that, you kill the microbiome, right? The, the, the herbicide impact of that are as devastating below the ground as they are to non-GMO crops above the ground, okay? So all of the leaves that would fall off the pine tree if you spray it with Roundup will fall off, everything dies under the earth too. So that's really when you hear about these flash floods happening in agricultural areas, it's because the use of Roundup has so quickly devastated the microbiome below the soil, right? As have continual tilling and annual cropping and all those different lack of resting the land and lack of using animals, all those different things together, right? That takes away the glue that holds the earth together when there's a big event, right? So if that's what happens when it rains a lot, you can imagine when it rains a little, there's going to be a similar leaching and a lack of ability to respond to that in the earth. Right. Okay. So carbon isn't we don't want to sequester carbon just because it's good for the planet. We want to sequester carbon because it's the nutrition for the soil that feeds the production of healthier food. Hmm. It's kind of confusing to me. I was just reading about this with pastured eggs. Like pastured eggs have three times the protein of a non-pastured, than of a battery egg. Three times, but the same amount of calories. So, and I kind of wonder that with broccoli and stuff too. I'm like, how does it have the same, what is the other stuff that right. makes up? I need to learn more about that. But I don't know like how, what else comes in. I'm assuming it's just like more fibrous. In general, I've seen just observationally in plants and animals, like slower growing tends to be more soluble. So it's like finer fibers. It dissolves more quickly. It's got a longer flavor. It's got a more intense flavor. Um, it's smaller, you know, things like slower growing has all these characteristics. Um, it's sweeter. Uh, and then faster growing tends to be more fibrous and ropey, have less solubility um, and less sweetness. Um, so the, all these different kind of characters that I just observe in plants and animals around speed of growth in agriculture. Hmm. Uh, but I kind of wonder, like, what what else is in there when you're growing it that fast? But I mean, this is all. And the thing that's amazing, too, is that it looks the same, you know, but you, you see some of the statistics like oranges have like one fortieth of the nutritional content that they used to have. No way. Oh, my gosh. Chicken has like a third the protein that it used to have in a on a per serving basis. Wow. 
Yeah, I would love to know. It's all over my head, of course, but I would love to know. Then, like, well, then how did where does it go? Right, like to your point, like if there's a third less protein, it's the same. It's the same chicken, but it's just it's just less. It's just less quality, less uh, less protein folding, and I don't know. Geez. So, and then the crazy thing is that you know if you. The time that we're benchmarking against then was the 1950s or those studies about the protein chicken. At that time, the average chicken lived over 50 weeks, almost a year to maturity. Um, and today, the average commercial broiler is two and a half weeks to maturity. Whoa. And they're finishing out at the same weight, which means that they're slaughtered at the same weight. So it takes 25 times as long in the old-fashioned way. So there's certainly a very different musculature structure, everything else, right? Um, and in our operation, it's 10 weeks. Hmm. So five times as long, okay? Ah. So it's like in, in, in a traditional operation for chickens, it might've been like 40% of their feed was coming naturally from them pecking at, at grubs and stuff like that. In, um, in, in like Belcampo's operations, 15% comes from that, just from them being outdoors and the remainder is from grain. So it's a, it's a, there's a spectrum, right, of speed and the trade-off associated with that speed. But it's a, there's been a massive transformation. I think that's part of why supplementation is so prevalent now yeah. and for so many people, because most of, if you're shopping at uh, a conventional American grocery store, you're not getting high nutritional value food. You're just Yeah, you're not getting food. You're getting <laughs> you're not you're not getting Yeah, I you know, I, I'm I'm food has been a really focus for my for me and my family. You know, we 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 spend we spend most of our money on high quality food. We think of food as medicine so that so that my kids can grow up big and strong and um and and we are very intentional. You know, like we bought um we went half on a half cow on, uh, on a cow that my my cousin grew in Eastern Washington, it was his first foray into um, raising beef, and um, it's just a it's a different animal. It is, is you know when you go from like a USDA from Safeway or whatever Winco, and you eat that, and then you eat a grass fed, grass finished you know beef from um, fifty miles away. It doesn't even taste the same. It's it's richer. It uh, uh, it's it, it is a little. The texture is a little bit different. My, my my one of my questions for you is for for a for an organization like Belcampo, who it's like this sticking to the basics, keeping this small the small farm idea, but doing it at scale. That must be quite an endeavor to try to make sure that your your profit margins are okay. But you're waiting long enough to raise the chicken before harvest, before packing. Like, how many brilliant people do you have thinking and working on on how to do this in a sustainable way that's good for the environment and also good for the consumer and also good for the company? That's the question. Yeah, right. I mean, honestly, it's been really, really challenging. You know, um, and it's almost like we're selling a product that doesn't exist anymore. And the reasons it doesn't exist is that we have culturally chosen cheap meat, right? We have been offered cheap meat and we've just said, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> bring it, right? Um, so that's the problem is that we're, we operate in a way that's kind of fundamentally anti-economical, right? We're willfully inefficient. 
Um, we could do everything cheaper and faster. And that's been the challenge is figuring all that out. Everything, I mean, even most meat production companies are buying in, you know, boxed meats and then just packaging it differently, right? Um, so they're buying things that have already been processed. They, you know, typically when when somebody buys a product at the grocery store, I once mapped this out in a in a in a flow chart, but with a with a couple of people who know the industry, the conventional industry better than I do, and it's between 10 and 25 companies have been involved in the transaction. So if you take that compared to Belcampo, which is like our farms, our own slaughterhouse, some of our products are co-packed, like we use a manufacturer, like my meatballs and the bone broth are actually made in facilities that have specialized equipment. Um, and then some of them are made in our plant, just depends. But even that, even in that case, it's still just two companies. Hmm. You know, so even in the most fabricated Belcampo product, so just a vastly different system. And you would think, oh, wow, there's lots more margin you can capture in that. But the problem is that the cost of our ingredients is just so much higher um, because we're doing 100% grass. We're taking the animals to 24 to 26 months of age compared to 18. And we're doing that because, you know, when you grow animals free range, it takes a lot longer to get consistent flavor yeah. to take them longer. And that's kind of like it's been the problem, the problem in grass-fed product, I think, and the reason that it's gotten – a reputation for being inconsistent is that often the animals are slaughtered in adolescence and they haven't gone through their full sexual maturity. And, and we know this as being humans. When you go through puberty, your ability to, to put on fat changes. Like if you're a woman, you all of a sudden get like fat on your hips and like you get boobs, like you get all this extra muscular fat, right? In certain places that when you go through puberty, that's just purely hormonal. And so your body's ability to accumulate fat, I mean, my, you know, eight-year-old daughter can eat whatever she wants and she's skinny as a rail. I can't. And that has to do with my hormonal profile, right? Primarily and activity levels and things like that. But like there's a, there's a major meta metabolic function change that happens in puberty in animals. That's crucial because we, you know, fat is precious. It adds tons of taste and, and flavor. And then additionally, there's some some interesting effects that happen that I've just observed. Again, this isn't widely documented, but adolescent animals is you get like livery and gamey flavors that I think are just mom moments on the pheromone evolution mm. where you're capturing them at some moment of like, I don't know what like testicular or like secondary sexual thing is happening in their body, but it'll give this sort of pronounced gamey or livery flavor. And when you have animals that are have gone through puberty, those things normalize and stabilize as a more consistent product. So to achieve that consistent product, we're taking animals to a more advanced age. And that also, you know, implies a greater cost. So all that stuff is just, you know, th those are the real challenges in the business. What I will say is what I've learned. I think I can focus on the positive and where I'm going with things. And so one thing that I'm doing now is launching our very first, um, set of like fully cooked and ready to go products early on hmm. we would really like sell you big chunks of meat and heads and toes and tongues and tails and and all types of organ meats and i am now doing a great business in organ meats it's taken a while for that business to evolve but we just launched our our fully cooked meatballs or fully cooked carnitas i've got seven more products like that lined up for launch next year so we're trying to take an, a really high quality product, but meet the American consumer more where they are, hmm. right? I don't care, I mean, Instapot's great, but some there's some days when you don't wanna braise, you know, you don't wanna have to do all that. So one thing that I've learned is like, take this super A plus product and put it in the format that meets people where their needs are. Um, yeah. That's learning, because I, 
you know, I kind of realized like, I'm not going to be the woman who teaches America to cook shanks. <laughs> right. But I'd like to be the woman who supports the scaling of a truly regenerative business. Yeah. To a scale where it becomes meaningfully accessible. I'd like to be that woman. Yeah. So that I have to put the product into a format that makes makes it easier for consumers to use it. So that's one kind of major learning. Second major piece is that we are and our team is collectively launching an amazing partner farm program now. We have our first partner farms for next year lined up. We've done our first deal for poultry. So we're working with farmers that are in our area to convert them to fully regenerative practices. And then we're effectively serving as the marketing distribution arm for that product. Cool. So a huge step and that's not i mean even in 2021 90 plus percent of my products are still directly from that piece of land at the base of mount shasta you know all that's still the story that's but then the future i feel like it's a it's a more meaningful thing and instead of saying oh yeah we now manage about 30,000 acres and i'm going to then we're going to manage 300,000 acres it's like i'd rather help a bunch of farmers that are doing things well do them even better and then market and support their scale yeah. right and truly regenerative practices so that's that's really the thrust for me is expanding through partnership oh it's so good say like those are the insights about how we're getting better which tells you the reality of what the challenges have been so far you know? yeah yeah well we we as consumers win you know your attention to detail i we're having carnitas for, uh, the carnitas for dinner tonight as soon as i got my box i immediately was like it was like christmas it was early christmas for me like pulling out like this this pouch of bone broth and being like oh my god i can't wait to eat this immediately like you know thawing the steak and as soon as it was thawed you know throwing it on the grill the taste is incredible i mean the 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 finished product what people get what they unbox and what they consume and cook for them and the, themselves and their family is such a is such a great high quality and i'm super picky and my family is too um, so I just want to say you, you, from one guy here in the Pacific Northwest that, that has been able to sample and try at least a couple and an, another one tonight, it's just, it's such a, it's such a tasty, such a tasty steak. And that bone broth was so good. I make my own bone broth. And I, when I got yours, it was like, Oh, they're, they're, of course hers is way better. This is so much better. <laughs> I, I did it. Awesome yeah. I want you to feel, um, like you're not making any sacrifices on taste quality. I want I want this to be the choice because it costs more. I mean, our meat costs a lot, right? Uh, we're top of market, and yeah. but I want when you're eating it, a I want you to feel awesome, you know. And I love that I can eat all of our products to the point of like total satiety, and then feel amazing the next day. There's never like a meat hangover or yeah, any of that yeah. garbage that you feel when you eat crummy stuff. A lot, of, a lot of that's due to saucing and that kind of thing. But I think a lot of it's also just that there's, you know, really fast growing protein. The fats have a lot of toxicity in them. I think there's BPA. I mean, there's just like stuff in that meat a lot of times. Um, and then also the fact that a lot of industrial products are soaked in antimicrobials, you know, so all the chicken that you buy in conventional grocery stores is soaked in bleach and lactic acid. So it's active. Oh. So it's like, you look at the number of people have to take you know, Tums or an antacid after every meal, it's like, yeah, because you're suppressing your microbiome while you're eating it. So of course you need to fix it on the way through, right? Yeah. So there's a lot going on there. Um, but I, so I really want the taste quality to win, but it's hard because, you know, the trade-offs on taste quality and around slow growing, it's all about spending more money. Yeah. You know, 
it's like every single thing we do that's the right choice. There's never a thing that's like, well, the right choice would be this. It's like, well, great, that's also the cheaper thing to do. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, unfortunately, they're always connected to more expensive. But that's like, I, I think that the market's out there for people who want that product. That's really spectacular. And we're looking yeah. now, you know, preliminarily, our, you know, our, our beef is very, very similar to game in terms of its nutritional profile. Um, we're a one to one omega three to omega six ratio. I did not know that. So in terms of the, the, you know, the, what you're eating when you eat it, it's analogous to an elk, right? Um, it's, it's got that characteristic. So there's, if you look at it that way too, it's like, wow. well, there's value for money, right? Oh my gosh. I did not, I, I did not know that. That is so cool. <laughs> wow. Oh man. So if you're raising them in a truly evolutionary diet, right. you know, and that's actually, you know, it's been interesting to me. I've also there I've tested many of my competitors over the years and I come across plenty of like labeled grass fed and finished meat that has an omega three to omega six ratio. That's like one to 12. And so that means, you know, a couple things. It can mean that people are acting out of integrity, but it also can mean that you're, you know, mixing in grass with grass seed, right. In pellets. So you can legally use a grass seed pellet. You can fatten an animal at 18 months and still call it grass fed. Really? Finished. I did not know mm. that either. Oh, that's cheating. I in omega sixes. I don't know how prevalent that is, you know, and but I definitely have seen those profiles in products that are widely commercialized, you know, and it kind of explains there's huge variability. Sometimes you see grass finished meat that's like ridiculously um, marbled and it's like, how do you do that? I mean, right. we all know what it's very difficult to get super burly and 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 fatty on spinach right even we're not ruminants but like it's analogous you know you have to walk around gather the grass chew it i mean it's difficult to put on a lot of fat with that diet for animals too so there's things you can do like sorghum is a grass it's a very high sugar grass but it's technically grass so in certain areas it's feeding sorghum so there's like kind of workarounds on that but we do do that regular testing on our omega three to six ratio because it's it's what we spend for, you know. So I want to share it with consumers, and I'm on the cusp of communicating that information more about the how analogous it is to wild game because I think it helps people understand the price difference, you know. Yeah. And I think people are like, well, it's bison, so of course I'm spending nine ninety nine a pound for ground bison. It's like when that's like my ground beef in there. What's why is it nine ninety nine a pound? I'm well because it's like bison. Yeah. <laughs> like, right wild meat. I mean, it takes the same amount of time to raise and takes the same amount of grass. Right. Um, so these are ruminants and that it's, they all behave, you know, similarly in terms of their gut and their ability to metabolize and turn in, turn it into quality meat. Right. I think people are getting hip to that. I mean, and of course I'm in a little bit of a bubble here with the, you know, biohacker, you know, nutrition kind of universe that I live in. Um, but I think that, I think there is an increasing number of people who are, um, highly active, who have, um, who are successfully, uh, uh, professionally successful, who also spend money on supplements and exercise equipment that would love to know that the cow that they're eating has the same, you know, the same profile as, as a, as a game meat, you know? And, you know, I, again, I think, I think to the, the prevalence of the carnivore diet and how much frequently, how more frequently it's coming up just it keeps coming up and there's you know Paul Saladino and Sean Baker, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson it just keeps coming up over and over like if you have food allergies, if you have inflammation, if you have arthritis, if you have gut issues like you should just try this. You should just just try it. Try it for a month 
and then watch how your symptoms go away. So I, I for one, think that it would be uh, that it would make a lot of sense to make that comparison because I think people are ready for it. Okay, I'm gonna. I, I, have, I have so many more questions. I'm really. This is fascinating to me. Obviously, I'm enthusiastic about this, and I, I'm. I'm so glad to be talking to you. Um, is there a place in the world for a meat alternative, the Beyond Burger or um, lab-grown meat? Is is there is it is there any sort of parallel universe where that makes sense? I don't think so. I see those as highly processed grain and legume based products. To me, it's, it's another way for the agro-industrial system in America to get us to eat a highly processed, fabricated, micronutrient poor piece of garbage like a box of cereal is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the same. And I also think it's not casual that those companies are so vested in that product because they're like if you look at the sales i mean covid kind of turned things upside down but you know heinz is cratering craft is cratering quakers cratering i mean all these traditionally highly processed middle of the store products have cratered in their sales they're mm-hmm. losing market share and so what are they doing they're like wait what else can we find out can we make that fits this profile you know, where it's shelf stable and made out of the same garbage and has no traceability. Yeah. It fits all the, it fits all the profile, you know? And okay. As a child of Eugene, Oregon, I am a big fan of veggie burgers, right? Um, yeah. Like I with, love it. With it's mushrooms sweet. in them, right? Yeah, mushrooms and beets. And we actually make one at the farm even that we sell in some of our restaurants. Um, it's great. It's fine. It's like, it's a yummy thing. Sometimes I crave that stuff, you know? But I, I want it to then look like a veggie burger and have pieces of vegetables in it. You know, like, I, the, is there a space for something that's browned and disc-shaped that's made out of vegetables? Hell yeah. But um, does it need to be something that mimics meat? The other really kind of interesting thing to me about that, if you kind of look at the the arc of those companies, right? They started out marketing with really fancy chefs and they got these sort of like surprisingly credible big names. I won't name them here, but you can Google it and look around. There's some big names that are like happily cooking up impossible burgers in their fancy, you know, Michelin restaurants. Awesome, congrats. Then they got these guys landed. I don't know what the what the contracts were, or what that looked like, or if those may, they may have been organic endorsements, who knows. And then pretty quickly, those products are on the menu at like, um, Burger King. And then all of a sudden, you know, if you're a, you know, family in Seattle, Washington, and you're having friends over for dinner, I don't care what income bracket, but there's no way you're cooking up something that's on the menu at Burger King for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, I know you can get this at Burger King, but you got to try my version. Yeah. <laughs> no effing way are you doing it, right? Right. So, that's confusing to me. So I'm like, was that the plan to totally pivot away from that? And then, of course, then you look at it and it's like this, the sad kind of reality, I think, is that these brands may be ultimately really positioned to take advantage of the really disenfranchised and ignorant and people without resources. There's also part of me that looks like it's kind of, you know, with the amount that those companies are spending to expand in China, it's like, you know, really trying to sell it abroad, to sell it to people with very few options. 
for real meat. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's, if you think about it, even look at the placement and the push that like McDonald's is doing and look at the, you know, McDonald's is now a 30% of its clientele is black, right? It's a black brand. It's, you know, like three times the representation than when they were in the U S and it's, and it's a, it's not a chain known for healthy options. And now it's pushing that to a community that is, you know, higher index for some health issues. It's like kind of an unfortunate, yeah. It's where it's like, wow, you know, these poor communities in the Southeast, primarily black are where these big CAFOs are located, you know? And it's like, it's like you're getting the effluent of the animal agriculture system and you're not even getting the product. You know, it's like sort of a, such a mess, right? But yeah. it's like basically being marketed to the disenfranchised now. Yeah. And it looks like the, and I got, I think the Petri dish meat may be more of a, but you even look at like, there's definitely like the upscale, like upscale, like skinny girl, vegan crowd in like LA, but they're not talking about impossible burgers. They're making really fancy parfaits and stuff you know like they're doing something that has nothing to do with impossible burgers right like the the chic like skinny thing like that's a different menu so i look at where they're positioning it's like you're not trying to go for cool vegans you're you're not going for people affluent people interested in the environment so you're basically offering a product to kind of like the 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 misinformed or or poorly informed and or socially economically disenfranchised. Yeah. And that's kind of how it's playing out. So then Petri dish meat is complex. Every couple of years, Petri dish meat makes a big thing and they get in a bunch of like, there's an article in like the financial times, there's an article in the economist. And it's like, there's some PR firm like hired by some group of biotech. That's just like, now's the time. Let's do another story about Petri dish meat. Yeah. Problem with Petri dish meat. It's, I think it's enough of an ick factor that even the, like the deeply disenfranchised will be grossed out by it. Right. I, I think you can't even sell that to people who have no choices, unlike the Impossible Burgers. So I'm being, you know, I, I don't know if, I don't think that it takes mu- much of a, like a, you know, the, you don't need a, a causality kind of evidence to say, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm going to avoid putting spontaneously populating meat cells into my own body. Ooh, yeah. Spontaneously populating meat cells. It's called a tumor. <laughs> oh, you're right, though. I mean, that's what they're doing. Like, yeah. what meat cell can you put into a... It's called cancer, and it's yeah. called... Those are the only other evidence. That the, that's what else... That's what they're doing. Right. So there's, like, the, the lab days... I, I mean, who knows? There may be a day when we're, like, so cool with everything and it's all fine. Um, but, but I mean, think about it, how people get so freaked out about 5g, like what about spontaneously growing, you know, cells that share 99% of their DNA with us? Yeah. Body. Right. I feel like there's going to be, a, so I would hope there's kind of like a grandmother's revolt around the globe against that. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it's like, it seems these things just keep on falling to the bottom of the pyramid. Unfortunately, they come out being positioned as like the whole, like, elite of the world is going to gravitate towards this and reject real meat. And sadly, the real meat remains for the elite, really. And these things filter down to people who don't have access or resources. And it's really unfortunate. You know, 
it's a really sad kind of trend because these things typically also don't have the greatest health outcomes. Yeah, right. Well, I, I was so darn curious. I had uh, I had one of the greatest proponents of Beyond Meat come in and explain to me how's it made, how's it grown, what's the nutrient density, what's the profile. You know, you can make like a little piece of jerky. You know, uh, Beyond Jerky, and it's like the size of uh, size of a silver dollar, and it costs 120 bucks. He's like, it's pretty good. <laughs> like, ah. Oh, miss me on that. Miss me on that. (laughs) I mean, the the cost basis that you bring up something interesting, you know, if you look at the SEC filings for beyond, you know, their ingredient costs are still like $30 a package, right? Right. That's with the, with the, the, the plasma stuff too, the Petri dish stuff. It's like, it's like $30,000 for a patty, you know? So there's a huge cost. There's a, your, the presumption is that these will, will tap some major unmet need. And then, will catch some like some you know huge upswell in consumer demand and then achieve scale and become viable i don't know <laughs> i don't you know maybe but i there's an interesting thing which is like i remember i i did a panel with somebody from beyond me a really lovely very well-intentioned person and 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 she, we were just making chit chat and she said to me you know there's um we've been surprised that like 20% of our clients are vegans, but that number is going down. I'm like, why was well, this? What this wasn't meant to meet the vegans. This product was meant to meet the American who wants to reject meat. And I'm like, okay, but they, the, the, the idea is that by offering something analogous to meat, you're going to take another whole chunk of the market. So instead of taking a piece out of the pie for vegans, you're going to take a peek out of a much bigger pie. Cause vegans are still only like 2% or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see that really happening. Yeah. I, I have uh, part of me wants to ask about other meat alternatives, but it's we're going to we're going to skip it because there's other things I want to talk about. Crickets. We'll just say crickets. Um, crickets take more protein to raise than chicken. Wow. Per pound. Huh? Wow. So yeah, Davis that shows that. Wow. So they're not efficient. You know what is efficient? Black fly larvae. If you really want to do something environmental, it's maggots. <laughs> Okay, I looked into the reason I know is I looked into crickets as pig feed. Okay, because protein requirements in pigs is massive, and for us using really high quality ingredients and feed for everything, it's super expensive. Our pork prices are astronomical. Mm. I'm having to raise them right now because feed costs are so high. So I a couple years ago was like, what? Where else could I find you know great efficient protein? And pigs are omnivores; they happily eat meat. Our pigs on our farm hunt and kill rattlesnakes. Cool. Okay? They're, I mean, they'll, they'll eat meat all day long. And I was, so we looked into that and I was, <laughs> and the crickets, I, as soon as it hit a wall really quickly, cause I was like, what about crickets eating it all over the press? It's like, well, they actually take more protein to raise per pound. They're, le- they're less efficient than chicken. Hmm. So then, then what I've learned was that the only thing we could do that would be cost effective would be black fly larvae. And then the idea of like putting a giant maggot farm on our farm, I just couldn't stomach it. That's so bad. <laughs> you know they're they're a pest for the animals so that didn't make any sense it's like get a leak in that operation but yeah isn't that crazy the crooked thing yeah i did not know that yeah you don't want to be you don't want to be in the maggot business i'm sure that's that's bad optics <laughs> that's crazy okay so i have questions about uh the 
the coronavirus effects and what I've heard about, you know, meat shortages, um, especially beef shortages. Is is that is that is that true? Is it false? Is it myth? Like it, I remember a month or two ago, we I kept hearing like stock up on red meat because it's about to be, you know, it's about to you're about to not be able to have access to it. Can you can you can you speak to that? Yeah, what happened in COVID um, was a, a couple things. First off, the meat supply chain is extremely efficient, and that efficiency is predicated on long-term planning. You plan two years out in terms of where you're buying animals, how many animals, how they're getting killed, how they're getting processed. So any large surge in purchasing that isn't planned for and is out of cycle has a huge knock-on effects because it's not a supply chain that can pivot quickly to a new demand. Hmm. So the near-term shortages were just because there's, um, you know, just massive infrastructure around this and huge POs, purchase orders, and huge structural efficiencies. So when, you know, you're talking about in a batch of beef jerky for Belcampo is like 5,000 pounds. For most companies, like 500,000 pounds. Hmm. So it's not trivial to make another batch if you sell it all. So one of the big meat shortages was around that. Another major issue that happened was on the supply side because the restaurant industry cratered. Many animal production companies cater just to food service. Again, this is a very structured system. So if, let's say, barbecue company X, you know, Sizzler went out of business, California Pizza Kitchen went out of business, all these companies went out, I mean, they all went bankrupt. I mean, like, whatever, 50% of American restaurants have gone bankrupt in the past nine months. So that means that they're buying 75% less meat. Unfortunately, the way the system is, if I'm a pig farmer and I sell into food service for whatever airlines, I can't take that product and easily find another market for it because of the way that it's fabricated and processed. So that's where you heard about like all these farmers doing abortions for their pigs and billions of eggs being thrown into waste streams. I mean, it's horrific, horrific. Because the way that the channels are is so rigid that you can't just sort of say, oh great, these guys aren't buying these, this type of beef. No problem, we'll just sell it over here like I can as a small business. It just highly structured. These POs go multiple years in advance. So even though there's tons of companies running out of meat, there's also tons of companies dumping product literally and killing animals and disposing of them because the supply chain can't pivot quick enough. Hmm. That's one part of it. Second part, so that was really March, April, May. Second thing was June, July, August. And that was cultural. And that had to do with meat plants having massive outbreaks of COVID. And the degree to which that happened has not been discussed. It came out a little bit when Smithfield shut down some plants and Tyson did, but I was aware of it just being in the industry that it's still ongoing. Hmm. Meat plants continue to have very hyper, in fact, we just got the new CDC stuff that meat plant workers are like top of the list for vaccinations because it's so prevalent. Now, why is it prevalent? Part of it appears to be the fact that it's closed ventilation systems. It's very cold. It's favorable for the virus. And then these plants don't have natural air or water or air um, flow or windows opening because of contamination. So it's closed and it's chilled. So it's like a perfect environment for the virus to propagate. Mm. Then cultural issues, which is these plants were not proactive and didn't take steps. There's some great stories about this. And, you know, they, they really 
didn't take it worker safety seriously. And the kind of, I'd say that's a cultural issue that you just need to think about that when you buy your product, whether or not you personally care about the health of whoever's cutting up that meat, you can disregard it, but just think about the implications of that cultural attitude to every aspect of how that process goes, right? Yeah. He's not paying attention to safety. And they have really pretty damning evidence in terms of internal communications where people were disregarding this. And then, you know, in the up until June and July, there would be multiple deaths of COVID in a in the meat plant workforce and no steps were taken, no follow-up was done to find that cause of death or anything. So they were actively not paying attention to it. So there that's a bigger kind of cultural issue that I'd say doesn't it's not like these companies are evil. It's just that they're being held to a mandate around efficiency and cost management that's so extreme hmm. that they have no choice, you know? Interesting. Wow. How do you see it? I mean, how do you how do you see it going forward? I mean, specifically around the I mean, does does the industry because because here you are uh, as Belcampo, direct to consumer, um, really sort of not having to rely on that arm of the business to 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 go to restaurants. Um, how, how do you think? How do you see that kind of shifting? How do you see the systems shifting from um, from where it was to where it needs to go now? I mean, I think the COVID crisis has like highlighted for consumers, many of the issues, right? So there's an, there's a big thing is that people are kind of woke to the issue for lack of a better word. Um, and that's, that's, that's a first step, right? Acknowledging that there is a problem with it and people, the, the light of COVID shining on like, wow, these are not great actors in the economy, right? That's the only kind of major shift that I've seen from it. They, I, I don't think this is a shift though, Sean. I don't think that the meat system is going to, slowly evolve and get like incrementally every better every year. I think that what we've seen with the Beyond Meats and the Impossible Foods is people saying, this is so bad, we want something totally different, or we think there's a market for something totally different, right? And that's kind of what I, what I see Belcampo is, is we're offering something completely different, albeit natural meat, right? But I think it's a breaking and reforming thing more than, and I, I think COVID was just the first of a major fissures. You know, the other thing to note is that COVID is fundamentally a disease that comes from the abuse of animals, right? It comes from trafficked animals in wet markets. We've shown that. It comes from having crates of pangolins on top of crates of bats in confined, non-natural systems. So a, a disease hop species. SARS was also from a similar thing. Avian flu, swine flu. These are all the recent animal diseases are all diseases. Just one moment with COVID coming from the abuse of animals, it looks to me like the the next most likely place to, to sort of leave it for you to think about too is when we look at like swine flu and avian flu and SARS and COVID all coming from animals being trapped, being confined, not having a healthy environment, and then their diseases jumping because of proximity to humans and confinement and multiplication and density of disease, right? That's the kind of magic cocktail that got us into this shitstorm that we're in right now. Hmm. So looking ahead, where's the next one of these things gonna come from? Hmm. Right. Confinement I mean, animal operations. So I actually, I have sort of like a, like a pretty dismal worldview lately where I think it's likely that the next one of these big diseases is gonna come from a CAFO. It's gonna come from a confinement operation of some sort. So to, to think about a bigger picture, to plan for and manage against diseases, we're gonna have to really rethink our relation to animals. Hmm. 
right? So and it's not from a place of compassion, because I actually think that people aren't really motivated on a bigger picture for massive structural change around compassion. I think from a purely like disease management perspective, we need to be cognizant of the animal systems that feed our need for meat, feed our need for fur, feed our need for animal stuff, like pangolins were harvested for their scales, which is like a aphrodisiac, right? To feed our need for those things, we abuse animals. And when we abuse animals, we get sick as a result. Mm. And so in, in the US, we don't have the same trafficked animal thing that they do in Asia, but our equivalent is these confined animal operations, which are breeding grounds for disease, right? So I think there's gonna be more breakage than there is gonna be slow evolution. And that breakage is gonna come from, I think it's coming to the boiling point around contamination and disease. Wow, wow. Well, I'm really glad that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not delighted by the by the answer, but I'm glad I asked that question because that makes sense to me. And, you know, when we're living out of harmony with animal, you know, if, if it's not animal husbandry and it's a CAFO and we're out of sync with how we care for living beings on this planet, then things go wacky. Things go sideways pretty fast. Yikes. What, what about, um, I want to kind of bring it back to to Bel Campo as a company. What you know, you've you've mentioned that the the, the fully cooked is 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 like sort of the next the next waves, and you, you've mentioned that you're expanding to to include other farms um, and use your business practice, use your farming practices, um, and and use your distribution. What else? What five or ten years can we look forward to as we can as we continue to stay at home and order in and and our need for meats in, in, is remains for those of us that can afford it and that really put meat and high quality food at a really high premium in our lives. What, how does, how does Bel Campo continue to evolve? My focus now is reducing the transactional friction for pro, for my cup of products. So I've come a long way. I mean, I actually started my first experience with meats like yours. I bought a whole cow back in 2005. I just moved back from Italy. I got a big taste for animal products. When I, I lived there for seven years and ate a ton of meat and got, I'd been a vegan beforehand. I really like loved meat, realized it was great for my system. Came back, couldn't get that quality of meat and bought a whole cow and um, made like 50 meat loaves and taped my <laughs> freezer shut. I had like electrically, that like, kind of stretchy electrical tape. I taped my freezer shut and I, you know, it was nuts. Like, and I realized in that moment, okay, this is totally not scalable. I'm crazy. Um, and so this is fine for me. Right. But my journey from there has been all about re reducing the friction. Right. So that would be a high friction interaction. Right. Having to like buy a whole animal, do multiple emails, get a refrigerated van, you know, deal with handling 600 pounds of meat. You know, all this stuff is is extremely high friction. So yeah. my journey has been about reducing the friction of that interaction. Got it. So that's the ongoing journey. At this point, the regenerative farming piece is solid. The farming operations exist, they're solid. We've been through the pain. It's scaling up that supply chain and continuing to make the product more accessible. Got it, cool. Yeah, I, I can attest to that. Driving, you know, uh, driving from Seattle to Kennewick and packing up, you know, an entire cow split between me and my father and putting it into Tupperware bins with ice and then driving it over the Rocky Mountains back to my house. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's a lot of work, man. That's totally. And then it's also packaged in kind of not so appealing bags. Yeah. 
you know, and there's, there's, you know, liquid in there, there's purge. Yeah. Um, there might be some thawing. Um, you know, now we're transitioning to a full fresh line. So every, nothing's frozen. I mean, it will be when you buy it on e-com, but when you buy in my retail locations, like in our grocery stores, it'll never be frozen. It's packaged with a nitrogen flush where it can last 40 days mm. in the refrigerator. So it's like some pretty magical stuff that's going to happen for us. So it's all about like putting, loading the front of the pipe of the current distribution system with different level of product. So you don't have to opt into a totally different distribution to buy stuff that's clean for your body and clean for animals. That's what I want to achieve. Yeah. Awesome. Well, every, every, every one of my listeners will have already known who Belcampo is. Um, I'm sure because they're, you know, highly intentional detail oriented people. And now they, they got it. They got it straight from Anya. They got the straight skinny from Anya. A big discount code too. Yes. Get you into our program. Yes, I, I will. Uh, I will have mentioned that by this point in the in the beginning of the show, and I'll even I'll mention it halfway through the show too. I I I, I can attest to the to the quality and the taste and the flavor. I'm excited for the carnitas tonight. You know, I just I couldn't resist, but just like open up the bone broth right away. It was so good. You know, it beats the hell out of my Thanksgiving Day turkey carcass bone broth. It was it's good. I mean, my bone broth was okay that I did from the turkey carcass, but it not not like yours. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the best thing for a turkey bone broth, um, is ginger and shiitake. So that's what I do. Cause turkey has got that particular flavor to it. So the key things with turkey is it needs longer extraction than chicken. You know, chicken, you can make a damn good bone broth in like four hours for turkey. I typically do a 24 hour simmer. So do it overnight in your oven covered, um, and then extract it with, like just take like a couple knobs of ginger, slice them, throw them in there, and then put in, um, I take like the stems of shiitake mushrooms, you know, cook the mushroom caps, but like keep the stems, throw in a bunch of those. That flavor profile really balances out the turkey. Oh. And that's with turkey, some of the best bone broth I've ever made is a turkey and beef blend. Those flavors go really well together. Um, so that's my recommendation. But yeah, ch- chicken bone broth straight up, ginger, some lemongrass, and it's fantastic. But beef typically too, you know, we put beef and pork together in ours um, because that flavor, they, it's like the, the flavors of those kind of complement each other really nicely. But for home bone broths, you, things can taste a little murky at times because people don't extract it for long enough. And extraction is really important because, you know, bones are made out of matrices of collagen that then calcify. So when you're pregnant, your ba- your fetus is like, their bones actually started out as like a little gelatin matrix and then that calcifies. So when you're, you go the other way and you're taking the collagen out of the bones, it takes a really long, slow simmer. You can get some, it's easy to render collagen out of skin very quickly. In fact, collagen powder is made out of skin, mm-hmm. um, typically of animals. So call it all the commercially available collagen is made out of hides, out of skin. But if you're trying to get it naturally out of bones, for a beef broth, I'll even do 30 plus hours of a simmer. And turkeys that grow a little bit slower. So chickens that grow in 10 weeks, you know, like three or four hours, you can pretty much break that down to a meaningful level of extraction. Um, and then with, with turkey, you need to go a lot longer. I, I didn't, I, man, well, oh, I'll put that in my notes for next year, the ginger and shiitake. Cause, uh, I, obviously I, you can imagine I didn't include that in my bone broth this year. I, I did. I know. I didn't know. I did simmer it for. I mean, with like carrots and 
onions and broths, like don't bother. You're just gonna make yourself an expensive onion with a lot of collagen in it. You know, <laughs> too many aromatic. Just like no, who needs a mushy carrot from the broth? Nobody right. does. And so I can add a tiny bit of like coconut sugar or something if you want that same flavor. But I always look for my bone broths. I want to infuse it with things that are, and I don't. I, I like I like the functionality of it, but I also like hard things that don't absorb because it's just absorbing collagen otherwise. Um, and then infusing with things that are like that are going to assist in the in in the metabolism in the functionality of that in my body. So ginger is great for that because with bone broth, I'm looking for absorption, like the ability to absorb the collagen, and um, ginger assists with that. And yeah. Chautauqua yeah. Is what it does it just makes it taste amazing. It adds some more of the umami to it. So I always think that like the poultry adds like top notes to bone broth, and then the ruminants add the bottom notes to bone broth. And so I like the poultry and ruminant blends a lot too, because they like lamb with chicken is amazing. Like you kind of like those two because it adds this really round, big flavor to it. Awesome. Oh man, that's cool. Bone recipes. That's one thing. If you want a really simple, functional lunch, take our meatballs and warm them up in a, in a couple of cups of bone broth. Add a little bit of like lemon juice to that or like little shaved ginger so delicious so in, simple in like, in a saucepan in a saucepan on the stove medium yeah. just warm just boil the bone broth toss the meatballs in warm them up it's like a little almondigas you know kind of like a little soup with that yeah because it's yeah. also collagen i love having collagen with my meat because it does really assist in the metabolism of your of your striated muscle um you know collagen helps you extract more glutathione and get more nutrition out of your meat so the fact that we kind of we focus so much of our meat consumption now on striated muscles we don't eat the striated muscles along with the collagenous tissue. We are like ribeyes all day long, hamburgers. Um, they're delicious. Uh, they're easier to chew, but they don't have the same full nutritional profile. So we've evolved accustomed to having our muscle fibers along with our collagenous tissue. And so our digestion, we work with those better in sync right together. So having your collagen with your your bone broth, something with your your steak or with your burger where possible is a great way to enhance the nutritional benefit of those products. Awesome tip. Oh man, so cool. I'm glad I I'm glad I went there. That's great. <laughs> cool. Well, this has been I really enjoyed this conversation. I've got one more question, which is a fill in the blank. And then um just before I ask the fill in the blank question, where can people learn more? Where can they obviously I'll give them the I'll I'll give them the promo code and everything already, but where can they where can they where can they follow up? You can follow us at Belcampo Meat Co. on Instagram, and I am at Anya Fernald, just my name. Um, I typically do a lot of recipes and kind of wellness things. And on Belcampo, we talk about our farming practices, about regenerative agriculture, lots of meat cooking tips there as well. And then um, Belcampo.com, you can buy all the meats there. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so here's my last question. It's a fill in the blank. And you this can be based on just anything and everything that you know, and you can elaborate as much or as little as you like. <clears throat> if you would please fill in the blank as you take your last sip of cold coffee. Uh, everyone would benefit from knowing how to tap into their intuition mm. around food, around eating. You know, I think um, we we have this moment as women when you have when you're pregnant where you're like, oh my god, I'm craving this, I'm craving that, and it's like the first time I think that people have a a, a real understanding of their intuition about food, right? Where they're actually craving something, not in like a way that's perceived of as just being emotionally unhealthy. You know, I think we we have superpowers as humans around food, right? We know what can heal us and we also know what's not good for us, but we learn to ignore those that information. 
So I think knowing how much intuition you have around food as a human, knowing how sophisticated your olfactory system is and assessing everything from like potential mates via their pheromones to what you know your gut needs right now for healing is a super interesting thing. It's something I've been like practicing in my own kind of wellness practice is when I'm hungry, kind of considering some different foods and paying attention to my body's and emotional response to them. And I think a lot of times we think about like cravings is like, I'm going to eat 10 brownies. And it's like, no, cravings are actually, you know, if you have them in a, if you coach yourself around them, they can be things that tell you key stuff around your gut and your health and what you need to pay attention to right now. So there's something animals have in droves, right? And we see this all the time in grazing where animals that are sick will eat bitter herbs. They'll gravitate towards natural antimicrobials in when they're grazing. Um, and that's something we have that potential as well. We have that superpower and we need to, I think, culturally learn to pay attention to it. That is so insightful, Anya. That is so cool. I can't wait for you to write that book. Uh, <laughs> you got all this free time on your hands. Uh, that that is that is fascinating. I I total I'm totally into that. I love that answer. That's so cool. Um, well, this has been a really great conversation, and uh, I thank you very much, Anya, for for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thank you for having me, Sean. And scene. This episode of the OPP is also brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% all natural open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. You know, the one supplement that I have sort of re-fallen in love with, my favorite nootropic of all time, of course, is Neurofuel. And the the one that I've gone back to is serotonin brain food. You know, we make our own serotonin in our brains, but you can take serotonin brain food to help the creation of serotonin. And this is how I use it. In the, usually I fast first half of the day, I eat at like one or two o'clock. And what happens is I get a lot of work done in the first half of the day and I try to stop my work day around, you know, three or four o'clock and I haven't eaten. But when I hit lunch by, by around three or four, my work day is done, but then it's like time to be dad again and, you know, do my chores and feed the chickens and do yard work and just be, you know, present with, with my family. And, uh, oftentimes I'm a little fried. Like my brain is probably still in work mode a little bit. I'm a little bit edgy. And what I've been doing is I've, I've just been taking two. Uh, you, the, the standard dose is three capsules, but what I've been doing is just a little bit, just taking two capsules right at the end of my work day. And that allows me to sort of smooth into the rest of my day. Uh, it's a really wonderful product. It's not habit forming. It's formulated to take every day and I love it. I'm just in a better mood. And, and my wife actually mentioned like, you've been pretty cool lately. You've been really chill. And I said, well, I've kind of found serotonin brain food again. I've been taking it again. So she noticed, which is, uh, Obviously, an important an important thing when when your spouse knows that you're being more awesome. So head to naturalstacks.com and use the code OPP15 for 15% off. Any of the stuff that you want to buy, you should pick up some magnesium. You should pick up some vitamin C and some vitamin D while you're at it. But for sure, fall, I've fallen in love with serotonin brain food again, and you should go check it out. Okay, everybody, this is going to be a banger year. There's so many cool things that I'm working on. I cannot wait to roll out the virtual biohacking assistant. Thank you to everyone who has sent me your email. Um, we're going to be sending those those email introductions to the platform here probably uh, next week. And so if you want to participate in a customized 
virtual biohacking assistant that will give you resources on the biohacking things that you are most relevant to you. That's not going to take you a thousand hours to comb through 295 episodes of the podcast. We're going to give you resources. We're going to give you discount codes to optimize yourself so that you don't have to go to the doctor, so that you don't have to go to the hospital, so that you can increase your health, not have to rely on um, the man to keep you healthy. So send me your email, sean at seanmccormick.com and just say, I'm in, and we'll add you to that pilot program. Uh, I'm super stoked for it. It's close, y'all. Okay, I'll see you guys on the internet.